Welcome to Afrofiles. I'm Leslie Rose. On today's episode, we're discussing the Amistad Rebellion, a mutiny staged by enslaved Africans aboard the Spanish ship La Amistad in 1839. The vessel was ultimately taken into custody by the U.S. Navy, and the 53 enslaved people were charged with piracy and murder. Their trial in New Haven, Connecticut, became a lightning rod for U.S. abolitionists, and the eventual repatriation of the defendants to Sierra Leone stands as a rare triumph in the story of resistance to the slave trade. To learn more about this unusual moment in African and American history, I spoke with Marcus Redeker, Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Pittsburgh. Professor Redeker has written extensively about the Amistad Rebellion and created the documentary, Ghosts of Amistad, in the footsteps of the rebels, tracing its place in historical memory in Sierra Leone. Our conversation features discussions of slavery and violence, which may be distressing to some listeners. So if that doesn't sound like your cup of tea, feel free to check out some of our previous episodes. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for um, joining me today on our Apple Files podcast. Um, it is an honor, honestly, to uh, talk with you and interview you today, um, specifically about the Amistad Rebellion. But before we get into any more of that, um, could you tell me a bit more about yourself and what led you um, to your specific area of focus? Sure, Leslie. Thank you. My name is Marcus Redeker. I teach history at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I write what's called history from below, uh, and, and that basically means uh, history that concentrates on ordinary working people, not the elites, not the statesmen, philosophers, presidents, but rather uh, ordinary people as not only subject of history, but as makers of history. And this uh, emphasis in my own lifetime came out of the movements of the 1960s and 1970s the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement, the Anti-War Movement, the Women's Rights Movement, all of which demanded a new kind of history, a more inclusive, more democratic history. And and this was uh, one of the many origins of history from below. So that's how I came to write the kind of history that I do. Okay, so you have produced a lot of critical text over the course of your career thus far, but I want to focus on your work specifically on the Amistad Rebellion. So for our listeners who are unfamiliar with this history, could you provide a brief overview of the story? Yes, gladly. Uh, The story of the Amistad Rebellion, which took place in 1839, actually begins in Sierra Leone in West Africa. where uh, several hundred people were loaded onto a slave ship, a a Brazilian slave ship called Tesora, taken to Havana, Cuba, uh, unloaded, and then uh, a a group of those people, there were 53 of them, were placed on board the Amistad, uh, which was a schooner uh, that was uh, en route to a plantation region of Cuba. On, On the way... The, the, the enslaved Africans aboard the Amistad rose up, uh, killed the captain, captured the ship, and with the help of two Spaniards, uh, they sailed the ship all the way north 
to the northern end of Long Island, about 1,600 miles. This in itself is a great accomplishment. Um, they were captured by the U.S. Navy, thrown in jail and charged with uh, piracy and murder. At this time, a group of abolitionists, mostly white middle-class abolitionists, uh, heard about the story, came to the jail, and they and the Amasad Africans uh, worked together to build a legal defense, uh, which to the astonishment of everyone involved, they actually won. Their case went to the United States Supreme Court, uh, and they won that case, and the survivors of the Amistad uprising, uh, by that time it was only 35 of the original 53 people, were repatriated back to their homeland, to Sierra Leone. So this is an unusual story uh, in the uh, history of the slave trade. Uh, very uh, few slave revolts were actually won, and very few enslaved people got to return to their native land. But it's all the more important for those reasons. And it's also important because it was a tremendously powerful example of how an uprising from below could be successful. And it had a huge impact as such uh, in the United States in, in helping the abolitionist movement to grow and encouraging enslaved people to think that they could make change. Thank you so much for that description. I mean, I, I find the Amistad story very fascinating and inspiring, as you say. I originally learned about it um, because I interned with an organization that focuses on the Amistad story, but I found that um, living in Connecticut, um, it wasn't necessarily something that a lot of people seem to be talking about. Um, when I was teaching the story to others um, during this internship, uh, they didn't they didn't know about it. Uh, adults, children, it was just not necessarily um, something that a lot of people knew about. And so I'm curious is that actually how you have come across this story? How did you encounter um, the story of the Amistad Rebellion? Well, the, this is a, among historians, as you know, this is a pretty famous event. So, so I had known about it for a long time, but as I was writing a previous book, in fact, the book that I wrote just before the Amistad Rebellion, a book called The Slave Ship, Human History, I watched as these courageous people rose up from the lower deck and fought again and again and again in resistance to their enslavement aboard these ships. But very few of those uprisings were successful. Uh, all power and force is on the side of the slave ship captain. Uh, and, and in the aftermath of a failed rebellion, literally the decks of the slave ships would run red with blood. The tortures, the mutilations of the people who dared to rise up was part of the instrument of terror to try to control the other people who were enslaved. So as I'm watching all this really painful history transpire and writing about it, in the back of my mind, I keep asking myself, how were the Amistad rebels able to be successful? Uh, that first book only covered roughly 1700 to about 1807, 1808. Uh, when the uh, slave trade was formally abolished. It had continued illegally for many years thereafter, but the Amistad didn't really fall within the purview of that book, the slave ship. So I began to think maybe I could study that as a counterpoint to the slave ship, as an example of how people fought back successfully. So that was really how I was drawn to the story. Uh, it was part of a broader study of resistance uh, to the slave trade. 
so in relation to the book I, I wanted and the research related to this, this story, I think you touched a little bit about it, um, but I wanted to ask you two questions on methodology. And so there are numerous burgeoning African studies scholars that I know and that I know are out there whose research focuses on the history of slavery. And so many of these scholars uh, turn to works like yours as models for the kind of work that is possible that they would like to do, um, specifically in its ability to illustrate uh, a transatlantic, a more transatlantic model for the slave trade and slavery. A lot of the times I feel like you could um, I've, I've found texts that um, sort of silo these histories into specific regions, um, but I appreciate when, when texts sort of have this larger network um, in, in their narrative. And so I wanted to ask you what specific methods and source materials did you turn to when researching the Amistad Rebellion to sort of produce this, this um, transatlantic history? I've been doing Atlantic history my whole career, and I got into it by accident because my first book was about sailors. And, and essentially, by following them everywhere they went, I became an Atlantic historian. So, so I don't claim any special virtue. I think uh, if you're going to do that kind of history, especially if you're going to do the, this history from below, you do need uh, a different sort of methodology. And part of that is to look at everything you can find from folk songs to court records to newspaper articles to uh, stories that have been passed down over the years. Anything you can find is really valuable to try to get at the history of the people who are normally left out of the uh, textbooks. So, so this was actually a, a very important thing to me to to try to figure out how can we not only access the lives of those people but recover their voices however we we can to the extent that we can now in approaching the Amistad case I was struck when I first began to read all of the historical literature and there's a lot of good writing about the Amistad was how almost everyone approached the case from the point of view of the law the legal case, the Supreme Court case, the courtroom drama. And given the kind of history I write, I thought immediately, th this is all wrong. The, the center piece of this story has got to be the rebellion itself, right? Without that rebellion, without the capture of the ship, without the agency of these enslaved people, uh, John Quincy Adams, who was the legal counsel of the Amistad Africans, he has no one to represent. So let's get the order of this story right. It's not that the courtroom story isn't important, but that it's, it's secondary. And the real story is the successful rebellion. So in order to do that, I had to go back and read documents that other people had read um, in a different way, looking, for example, at their African backgrounds. And it turns out there was a massive amount of material about the African backgrounds of these rebels that previous historians had simply not considered to be relevant. Because in their view, this was an American story, a national story, not an Atlantic story. And if you go back and look at the African side, what you discover is that the key to the successful rebellion lay in the experiences people had in Sierra Leone, in their ability to fight, to wage war, to capture the ship and thereby to become uh, to become people that uh, everyone was talking about 
1841. The thing that these rebels did was that they made the most powerful people in the world talk about the meaning of their revolt. The members of the American Congress, the, King, the Queen of Spain, the Queen of England, the Parliament of Great Britain, everybody was debating this rebellion. That's power. They wielded power. But the sources of that power were in Africa. They attack the Amista, the hip kata kata, kiti kata, the hip kata kata. While I was reading the book, I was struck by the structure of it in terms of how you said you started at the origins um, of, of the Africans support the Amistad and how integral um, their experiences prior to being on that ship or prior to leaving the continent actually informed a lot of what happens. And I think that that is something that a lot of scholars are starting to <laughs> are starting to uh, sort of look to in terms of having a history of slavery that's not just uh, in the Americas or, um, you know, in, in Europe, actually thinking about the continent. Um, and as an African studies scholar, I, I really appreciated seeing that in your work. So thank you. Um, so I, I think that your response um, and uh, basically what we're talking about really leads to um, my questions on the documentary, uh, Ghosts of the Amistad, uh, in the footsteps of the rebels, um, which per was produced two years after the book in 2014. Um, and so this documentary uh, follows your journey along with two other U.S. scholars uh, to Sierra Leone. And the documentary chronicles your trip uh, to the home villages of the Africans who were aboard the Amistad ship. Could you tell me, um, and I think you've sort of hinted at it so far, but um, could you tell me what inspired you to create the documentary? Yes, I would, I would mention, Leslie, for your listeners that this film, Ghosts of Amistad, is available for free viewing on YouTube and Vimeo if they wish to see it. Uh, we just recently took the film away from the distributor who was charging too much money and can now it can be used uh, as anyone sees fit. So it is available. This film um, grew out of the book. You're right about that. Uh, and its specific origins were when a, a friend of mine, Conrad Tuxer, a specialist in the history of Sierra Leone, said to me uh, in 2013, we should go to Sierra Leone and talk to people there about the book. And that was a, an exciting idea. But as we talked about the possibility, we realized that we didn't just want to talk about the book. We want to talk about something bigger. We want to talk about the history, the memory of the history of the Amistad Rebellion or the lack of memory of it. Uh, in Sierra Leone. What's the meaning of this kind of resistance in Sierra Leone? I was really fortunate to be able to work with a truly brilliant filmmaker and quite a legendary one named Tony Buba, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Braddock, Pennsylvania-based uh, filmmaker who has done a number of really poignant and powerful films about the deindustrialization of Pittsburgh, the human side of, of that pain and violence. And so Tony uh, was eager to go to Sierra Leone and make the film. He's, he's really gifted. And what we decided to do as our approach was to go to 10 villages, villages that I knew, knew the Amistad Africans had come from, uh, and to talk with village elders 
not to ask leading questions, but to simply talk about the history of the village and, and, and slowly work toward our interest in the history of the Amistad. And uh, it turns out that in several of these villages, there was no memory. In two or three villages, there was some memory. Uh, and in two villages, there was a lot of memory. So what we were able to do was to create a dialogue between the documentary-based um, film we were writing on the one hand and the oral history on which it depended, and on the other hand, the document-based book that I had written. So in, in a very real sense, it, uh, it put these two kinds of history, the oral tradition on the one hand and the written tradition on the other, in dialogue with each other. And uh, I had never done that kind of thing before, uh, and that was uh, very exciting. So uh, we had uh, quite a meaningful trip. Uh, we were treated with the greatest hospitality by the people we met. Uh, the key to all of our success was a Sierra Leonean man named Tazif Karoma, who was uh, well known in all the villages and uh, was much trusted by people. That's why people were very willing to help us. So that really is the origin of the film. Thank you so much. It's, it's really great to hear all this background on it because I think as a viewer, <laughs> I have a lot of questions and it really brings a lot of insight into how the book and the film sort of are working together. Um, a question that I had um, or related to the creation of the, the documentary was basically around how scholars sort of translate their research um, into producing things like a, a documentary. And so many historians um, and scholars like myself are, have been trained to sort of use their research to produce sort of scholarly texts or books um, as you've done. Um, but while watching the Amistad or Ghosts of the Amistad, I wanted to know how you were able to use and translate your research on the Amistad Rebellion to inform the work that's been done in the documentary. Um, and so I also, in relation to that, want to know what some of the major challenges were um, in, in the creation of the documentary and also while you were interviewing um, some of the elders. Mm -hmm. You know, Leslie, uh, let me just say, first of all, having already written the book and then going to Sierra Leone to interview people, it was kind of terrifying because what if I was all wrong? Uh, I, I'm happy to say that didn't happen. But, for example, uh, there's a portion of the film where we talk to a man named uh, Ernest Ndomahina. I've just learned recently that he passed away. I'm very sorry to say. Uh, he was a member of the, the Wundi, the Mende Secret Warrior Society. And so we had a very uh, interesting talk about the, uh, the organizational ideas that would have been present among the people aboard the ship. And I had argued uh, that the Poro Society, an all-male secret society, was the key to the rebellion because Poro societies in the villages of Sierra Leone, that's the group that met to decide when you go to war. And that's actually what people were arguing about in the hold of the Amistad. And when uh, Professor Ndomahina said that the key to all this was the Poro Society, I felt like jumping on the desk and pumping my fists and saying, thank goodness, you know, he, this man really has a depth of knowledge that I could never have. So, so uh, what we, we learned a tremendous amount. I would recommend to younger scholars that they work hard to collaborate with people who have different kinds of expertise than they have. This is something that's interested me 
for uh, many years. So to work with a filmmaker like Tony Buba uh, and to be able to draw on his knowledge of filmmaking, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, I'm also uh, writing a play with a very distinguished playwright named Naomi Wallace. Uh, I'm working on a children's book with a, uh, a writer who does that kind of work. So to find people who have different kinds of expertise and then to put your knowledge of history together with their knowledge of a different craft and a different medium, that's a great way to reach a much larger group of people. So uh, to work, for example, with Tony Buba, uh, it, was a, it was a tremendous education. And Tony, who is uh, very, very funny, I might add, uh, would say to me frequently, Marcus, you can do that in a book. You can do that in a lecture. You can't do that in a film. And what he was saying was that the primary means of communication in the film is the film footage and that the voiceover and commentary and everything else is secondary, that the power of it lies in the images. And that was a, a really important thing and a challenging thing to learn because you have to simplify, not in, a, in the sense of making things less complex, but you have to kind of distill complicated things down to their essence and, and say them in a way that will get across uh, your idea with maximum impact uh, and, and very concise uh, expression. So, so to work with Tony in this was, uh, uh, was really a pleasure. I learned so much. Um, and I think uh, his expertise really helped me. One of the most important things about taking your work to a broader audience uh, as a historian, but I think as a writer in many disciplines, is that you have to want to do that. In other words, uh, you have to resist the temptation to write only for other specialists. Now, there are some challenges in writing for a broader public, but they're, they're pretty simple. Uh, the main thing you have to learn to do when you write for uh, a broader audience is just be clear and explain as you go. Don't take anything for granted. Don't assume that everybody's a specialist. Just explain the things that they need to know to understand the story. And sometimes that means dropping back and explaining a treaty about the slave trade or dropping back and talking about the history of the Poro society. But that's just an art that you can master. You can learn to do that and, and you can reach a lot more people that way. Great. Thank you so much. I think that um, in talking with you, it's very, not only this conversation, the story of the Amistad is very inspiring in multiple ways, but like as a recent graduate, I am also thinking about how my work, like translating a master's thesis into something that like other people can benefit from, not just like my readers or professors or other scholars. Um, so it's really great to hear the many ways that your projects have sort of, or your, your work on the Amistad has sort of translated into other um, mediums. Um, and so my last question, and I think you might have answered it, and so if you have, just let me know. Um, but my last question relates to um, how your research and writing on the Amistad Rebellion, um, as well as the production on the documentary, has sort of shifted your approach um, in the, like, in your subsequent projects. Well, I would say the, the main thing that's happened, Leslie, is that my uh, principled commitment to writing 
history from below has been confirmed in, in, in this, in this sense. Um, I've shown the, the film Ghost of Amistad in many places around the world. Uh, and I'll just give you two examples of responses that people have had. Uh, one woman in Paris, uh, after viewing the film, she was from Sierra Leone. She was Mende. She stood up and she said, thank you for making a film about my country that isn't about poverty and disease. Making a film that people can relate to in deep human ways. Uh, another woman at the Schomburg in New York um, stood up and said, my husband's family is from the village of Folu where you interviewed people. We had no idea that we were part of this history. This is, this is our history. So this ability to, to present history in a way that people can see themselves in it, you know, that they, they can imagine their way into the story. I think this is, this is the most important thing that, that one can do for this kind of history. And this, of course, makes it very meaningful in the way we were just discussing in terms of its uh, more popular accessibility and meaning. Uh, but I, but I would also say that the Amistad book in particular confirmed my belief that in, in the old biblical saying, seek and ye shall find. Because when I first started working on this book, I talked to some pretty distinguished colleagues in African history and several of them said, well, you're not going to be able to find anything new. That thing has been done. That story has been told. Uh, that ship has sailed, uh, pun intended. And being naturally hard-headed, I said, well, we'll just see about that. And it turns out that all of this stuff about the African side of the story was basically right there. And now, it, it is true, uh, it was partially hidden by previous research strategies. So, so basically, the in the period when the Amasad Africans were preparing to go home to Sierra Leone, it suddenly became very important to the abolitionists to find out where they were going and how they were going to get there. So there were a bunch of newspaper articles, some of them published in very small abolitionist papers, uh, in which the Amasad Africans are talking about their previous lives, which village they lived in, what kind of work they did what it was like in their village, what kinds of cultural things went on. Uh, but if you, if you are determined to try to find out about that kind of history, uh, it's frequently possible to do it. You have to have an innovative uh, uh, research strategy. You have to look at things people haven't looked at before. You have to search. You will find uh, blind alleys. And dead ends, you will go searching for this and that, and it won't be there. But uh, a lot of times you do find things, and that to me is one of the lessons of the Amistad story. That turned out to be one of the richest archives of material ever created about any group of enslaved rebels anywhere in the New World. I mean, you could, all, you could get to know these people as individuals, you know, and I tried to evoke that uh, to talk about uh, one man had a great sense of humor. Uh, and, and, and so just to learn about them as real people. And then, of course, the main purpose of the film was to go to Sierra Leone, interview people, access the oral tradition, and humanize the story even further. 
to try to give another perspective on, on, on this whole thing from living, breathing, thinking, acting people and how they were keeping the story alive. So that, again, is the way the book and the film work together. Uh, and that, I think, in the end, is what I'm uh, proudest about, is, is the way in which uh, this history of struggle uh, this history from below has been recovered, and if other people are inspired to do similar things, uh, I would be um, more than delighted. Thank you so much for that amazing, amazing answer. Um, I, <laughs> there's a lot that I could say about it. I, I just like am very moved um, by the things that you said, and also how all of the things that you said are translated into the documentary. Um, and in the book, that's exactly how I felt while I was reading it, there, that you were really trying to humanize these people and counter a lot of the ways that um, sort of the uh, <laughs> older historical documentaries can sometimes erase um, this sort of version of themselves. But as you said, there is a, a very rich archive um, of their lives that they, that they worked to create and that the abolitionists helped create. Um, and so, yeah, it's really <laughs> great to... Um, hear all of these things. So thank you. Um, that was my last question. Um, if you had anything that you wanted to mention before we close, although you said a lot, so I understand. Um, I really hope that this podcast episode encourages people to obviously watch the documentary, to read the story of the Amistad in any format, whether they um, read your book or um just learn more via the sources that are available. I know that New Haven, the New Haven Museum, has portraits and a lot of archival documents. And so all of that material is there. I think that I hope that your words and our discussion encourages people to go out and seek out this amazing story um, and to pass it along to others. So thank you so much. Seek and you shall find. Exactly, exactly. Here's another thing, Leslie. Uh, History from Below is never finished in the sense that there is always more to learn about these people. There are new sources to be discovered. So uh, I would strongly encourage your listeners to take up this story or other stories like it, because you will be surprised at what you can learn. Uh, don't let the naysayers turn you back. You know, the truth is that uh, the, the history is out there. We have to come up with creative ways to access it. Uh, there's a lot more work to be done in Sierra Leone, taking down the memories uh, of village elders. You know, the, I mean, in, in one village uh, in Sierra Leone, I was absolutely astonished by the level of detail that one man conveyed to me, things that were confirmed in my knowledge of the uh, uh, archives uh, about the Amistad case. It was just stunning. And this would have been uh, a transmission over about seven generations, about seven generations, this story had been passed down. So there are great wonders out there to be discovered. This has been Afrofiles. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, tune in next time to learn about the history of Kente Cloth. This episode was produced by me, Leslie Rose. Our editor is Ed Hendrickson. Our theme music is from Risen.